Okay, we're live. Hi, this is William Ramsey. Welcome to William Ramsey Investigates. On today's show, I have a returning guest, a very special guest. His name is Tim Tate. This is not our first discussion about his work. We talked uh, back in 2019 about a book he published titled Hitler's Secret Army, A Hidden History of Spies, Saboteurs, and Traitors in World War II. And then just last month, we talked about a new publication he had, which was The Spy Who Was Left Out in the Cold, The Secret History of Agent Golanevsky. And both excellent books. He does excellent work. A lot of great research, which you can find at his website, which is www.timtate.co.uk. And he's been involved in many documentaries and books, uh, some of which I listed in prior interviews. So you can go to those prior interviews and, and read about that or his website. But uh, today we're going to talk about a book that I think the second edition just came out. The title of that book is The Assassination of Robert F. Kennedy, Crime, Conspiracy, and Cover-Up, A New Investigation. Very timely considering that Sirhan Sirhan has been in the news. And I actually saw the son of Robert F. Kennedy on TV here in the U.S., uh, pleading for mercy for uh, Sirhan Sirhan. So I think this is an excellent time to talk about this book. So I'm delighted that Tim Tate has joined us. So Mr. Tate, are you there? I am, and thank you for having me on again. Awesome. Well, thanks for agreeing to the interview. For people who may not know, like this is, I mean, in the intro of this book, you talk about how long you've really researched this subject. Can you talk about your background in relation to the RFK assassination and, and your interest in, and who Brad Johnson was, who was your co-author? On this book, I first um, got in, involved in the RFK case in 1988, so quite some time ago, when an old CIA contract agent got in touch with me and wanted me to read a manuscript that he'd written about the case. Um, I have to say, the manuscript was was awful, um, but one or two or th two or three of the the bits about the in it about the physical circumstances of Robert Kennedy's assassination were fascinating, and they were particularly fascinating because at that time, all the official police files on the assassination, LAPD's files, its investigation, were secret. They had been uh, locked away in 1968, and for 20 years, LAPD fought to keep them secret. So when he brought me this manuscript and the information about the circumstances of Bobby Kennedy's assassination, that interested me because it pointed up a very serious problem. And that's, I know we'll get to it, but in essence, it's that the physics of the official story that Sahan Sahan shot Kennedy in the pantry of the loss of the Ambassador Hotel simply didn't work. I mean, they contradicted everything about the official version of events. I spent the next two or three years working on the research for the case and got access to the files, LAPD's files, when they were eventually released to the California State Archive. And I made a film, a documentary film, in 1992 for Channel 4 here in the UK and A&E in the US, a one-hour film, which explored the case and explored the assassination and came up with some pretty disturbing evidence. That was fine, but that barely scratched the surface 
And the reason for that is that the LAPD's files, the ones I got access to, there are literally tens of thousands of individual pages and hours upon hours of audio and video recordings. Now, it took a long time to analyze, cross-reference, and go through every single page of that. And in the mid, it, in about five years ago, I was working on a what became the book, The Assassination of Robert F. Kennedy, Crime, Conspiracy, and Cover-Up. And Brad Johnson, who was a, an American uh, journalist, worked for CNN, had also been simultaneously working away on the case. And we agreed to, to join forces, which is why the book is written by both of us. And essentially, it's the product of 25 years, very painstaking, very slow and methodical analysis of primary source evidence, not what other people have said or what conspiracy theorists have said. We went back to first principles. We went to the evidence. Gotcha. So you went through that with Mr. Johnson, and he uh, fortunately passed away, right? Yeah, he passed away last year uh, very unexpectedly. So just, in fact, before the new edition of the book came out. So I'm... Uh, uh, it's down to me, I suppose, to talk about the book now. Um, Brad was a, a formidable researcher and a, a remarkable mind, and I am very—I was very lucky to work with him. He brought to the book parts of the story which which I hadn't dealt with before, and you know they're very important parts. Gotcha. What What do you think was that contribution that was different than your research? What kind of stuff did he add? Well, Brad's biggest, I suppose, contribution to the RFK investigation was getting hold of a tape which everyone else had overlooked. And it's the only recording of the shooting itself. It was recorded by um, a Canadian reporter who had been in the Ambassador Ballroom when Bobby gave his acceptance speech on the night of June 4, 5, 1968, and had left, accidentally it looks like, his little cassette recorder running as Bobby turned and went off stage and went into the pantry where he would be shot. That recording had been turned over in the late 1980s, early 1990s to the California State Archive, but everyone had really overlooked it. No one had seen the significance of it until Brad got hold of it. He listened to it and heard something immediately. It appeared to show or appeared to record somewhere in between 10 and 13 shots being fired. Well, Sahan had an eight-shot revolver, and that's the only; those are the only bullets that were officially fired. Eight does not go into ten or thirteen. So Brad did what really responsible journalists do. He said, "This is I can hear this, but this is just my opinion. I'm a journalist; I'm not a forensic specialist." And he sent it to an absolute expert, an acknowledged expert in audio recordings who analysed it 
carefully, painstakingly, and with top-of-the-range scientific equipment. And that audio engineer, a man called Phil Van Prague, produced scientific proof that the tape, that little cassette recording, contained 13 shots captured in a five or six second period, which was the period in which Bobby Kennedy was shot. Right. And so for people who may not know, what is the official narrative of Bobby Kennedy's assassination so that they kind of have a baseline as, as you kind of continue your years talking about your book? Yeah, okay, we got a bit ahead of ourselves there, didn't we? The official story is that Bobby Kennedy was running for the nomination, the Democratic Party nomination for the 1968 presidential election. If he got the nomination, he would have faced off against Richard Nixon for the Republican Party. He came late to the race and had some successes and some failures. The big and the most important primary election of that 1968 cycle was California. If Bobby lost California, then his campaign was dead in the water. If he won it, he stood a very good chance of going on to claim the Democratic Party's nomination for the presidential election. So California was make or break. And on the night of June 4, in the early hour, just after midnight, June 4 stroke June 5, he went on stage in the Ambassador Hotel and announced that he'd won the California primary. So the stage was set for him to go on and potentially win the nomination. He steps off stage, he goes behind the stage and is going to exit through a kitchen pantry in the Ambassador Hotel. And at that point, a series of shots ring out. A man called Sehan Sehan is apprehended in the pantry, pointing his gun at Kennedy, and is wrestled to the ground. So at that point, Kennedy, uh, I should say, is mortally wounded. He will die 24, 30 hours later. At that point, Los Angeles police have got a man who's in the pantry and they've caught him literally with a smoking gun. So not unreasonably, he's the prime suspect. The problem is that none of the evidence, the ballistics evidence, the autopsy evidence, and the eyewitness evidence supports LAPD's initial presumption that Sahan shot Kennedy. In fact, it says the opposite. It says Sahan could not have and did not shoot Robert and, and you can see the pictures, the, the video is there available of the film of somebody holding Robert F. Kennedy's head and the shot that was the death shot was a headshot from behind. So you can see him kind of, I mean, it's pretty graphic, but you can see him bleeding and Sirhan Sirhan supposedly, uh, the narrative is that he was a Palestinian, which he was of Palestinian origin, and he was a had some kind of gripe. So that was his supposed motivation to 
go to the Ambassador Hotel, which doesn't exist anymore. It was torn down. But at that time, it was considered to be, a, you know, a, a proper venue or higher end venue. And it is remarkable, which ties in later to one of your chapters, that Robert F. Kennedy was driven to the Ambassador Hotel by John Frankenheimer, who had uh, just direct, well, had directed in 1963 the Manchurian Candidate. So there's a lot of suspicions there, but it was a cut and dried case. But it also there was um, elements of the evidence that were clearly, at least in my opinion, uh, either altered or thrown away or discarded right after the shooting. Can you talk about some of the stuff that went missing? Sure. I think, you know, what we need to establish straight away is the baseline, as you said, the baseline facts. So Hans arrested. He's got an eight-shot revolver, cheap, Ivor Johnson 22. And he has fired all eight bullets from that. Here's where the problems start. And they start for LAPD. Every eyewitness, and I mean every eyewitness, says that Sahan was never anywhere but in front of Robert Kennedy. He was always facing Robert Kennedy, pointing his gun at Kennedy. Every eyewitness also says he never, the barrel of his gun, never got closer than three feet from Kennedy's from the front of Kennedy, from Kennedy's face. The autopsy, which was conducted by a really experienced and very good and honest coroner called Thomas Noguchi, showed that Bobby Kennedy had been shot from behind. The bullet went in behind, behind his ear from a distance of no, between one and a half and three inches. You cannot reconcile those two things. Simple physics tells you a man who is in front of his supposed victim cannot shoot that victim in the back of the head. There was another problem. And again, these aren't problems that I'm saying I've discovered or other researchers have discovered belatedly. LAPD knew this within hours, days or weeks. Sahan had an eight-shot revolver. Only eight shots, ostensibly, were fired in the pantry. If there was evidence of any more bullets or any more bullet holes, that could only mean one thing, a second gunman. Well, here's the thing. LAPD found probably around 13 bullets or bullet holes, in addition to the eight from Sehan's gun. Wow. So you're saying a total of 21? Well, it, it depends how you count them. It depends what's counted. But the, I should stress that the reason we know this, apart from the fact that they, at their own investigative reports, the ones they suppressed for 20 years, show this, they also photographed their officers pointing at the bullet holes or pointing at the bullets embedded in the pantry woodwork. Now, it's very hard to get around that. You, you, know, you can't get 13 shots out of an eight-shot revolver. You certainly can't get 13 more shots out of an eight-shot revolver. Right. And uh, just, 
just for the record, other people were shot other than Robert F. Kennedy. I think five other people were shot, so that's an additional five bullets. So yeah, LAPD accounted, notionally, accounted for every one of the bullets in Sahan's gun. So that's why the 13, the evidence of 13 bullets or bullet holes, extra bullets or bullet holes, is such a problem and was such a problem. And what did LAPD do with that information, with that evidence? Well, it destroyed some of it. It destroyed the physical evidence. It destroyed some photographs. It destroyed some reports, even before Sahan's trial was concluded. And then it locked it all away for 20 years. Right. No, it's incredible. I mean, and so that story held for a very long time that Sirhan Sirhan was a lone nut assassin with a, with a gripe and agenda. And how did that trial, the trial even itself was suspect i mean just the evidence and his own attorney can you talk about that the trial was was a farce in many ways the district attorney threatened to ask for the death penalty the only way that sahan's lawyers and this is the most benign way of looking at this i should stress the only way that sahan's lawyers could get around that was to try and arrange a plea deal so that he didn't Sahan would not be executed if he pled guilty and that's how the the trial was well, the, the hearing was meant to play out now it didn't play out like that for a variety of reasons one of which was that Sahan acted out at one point during the hearing, during the trial, and had was the judge threatened to have him essentially gaffer taped to his chair. The trial was a disgrace. Evidence was suppressed. And Sahan's own defense lawyers glossed over the physical inconsistencies, which LAPD didn't want to draw any attention to. And Essentially, he was railroaded into prison. And he had no recollection of the evening of June 4th, right? So that was like another suspicious element. Like, I don't even remember shooting him. That should have sent up red flags at that time. You know, in whatever else is true in this and whatever else may have changed in this, from the beginning, Sahan has said the same thing. I don't remember. The last thing Sahan remembers is having a coffee in the Ambassador Hotel about 15 minutes or so before the assassination. And he was having a coffee with an attractive girl wearing a polka dot dress who he fancied and he thought he might have a chance with. The next thing he remembers, and this has not changed in the 50-something years, the next thing he remembers is one of Bobby's bodyguards jumping on his head in the pantry. He cannot remember a single thing. Prosecution, defense, every psychiatrist and psychologist who's examined Sahan said, that's absolutely genuine. He's not making this up. He cannot remember. 
And he had been, he was kind of like not a very towering figure. I, I don't think he was big. I think he was a horse jockey and he had fallen off the horse and had had an extreme head injury, right? Didn't he fall off the internal rail of the horse? And so he had had a pre-existing head injury, right? That's absolutely correct. And as you say, he wasn't a big guy. He isn't a big guy. Um, he had had an injury and there is some... There's some mystery surrounding that injury, I have to say, but he got an insurance payout for it, so we know that it happened. Um, but, and that put a that put an end to his career as a, a, a hot walker, as they called it, uh, not a jockey, a hot walker. Sorry. Um, so at the time, he was pretty much doing dead end jobs, occasional dead end jobs. He had no real money, um, and he was living with his family yeah i mean it's just his background was really i mean it just there's so much mystery about sirhan sirhan himself because what was he doing at the ambassador and who's this polka dot woman but there so the trial itself was suspect and still is suspect but there was also i think if i remember correctly the fbi was shape trying to shape witness testimony can you talk about that yeah, again, we have to bear in mind that murder isn't a state, isn't a, a federal crime, except in some very specific circumstances. It's a state crime. So the responsibility for investigating fell on LAPD with a bit of input from the LA Sheriff's Office, and it was run by the LADA. The FBI did keep... They did mount a parallel investigation, and in fact, its records which I also got access to because they were turned over to the California State Archives and are not quite as extensive as the um, LAPD records, but were still huge, are still huge. They are quite revealing. And what they're revealing, what they reveal is that both LAPD and the FBI ignored or recorded but then ignored three very definite, very clear conspiracies to murder Bobby Kennedy if he won the California primary. And, you know, when I came across these reports, these are their own reports. Word for word, they say this person, and this is just one example, who's a wealthy rancher in a town in Northern California, Bobby Kennedy was a bet noir for the, the ranchers because he had supported the fruit growers, the ag agricultural workers. This rancher boasted publicly that there was a fund, a half a million dollar fund, to pay for the assassination of Bobby Kennedy if he won the California primary, and that this rancher also boasted that he had personally contributed several thousand dollars to it, and the fund was being administered by organized crime in Las Vegas. Now, the guy's named, the rancher is named. The FBI goes, curiously, not LAPD, but the FBI goes to interview him. And they go to interview him because the people who have overheard him boasting this are two law enforcement officers in his own town. So you've got good 
evidence. You've got good first-hand witness evidence. And the rancher said, yeah, 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 you're right. I did say that. I did boast about that. But I didn't mean it. And, and, after, and the only other thing the FBI did was to go and talk to a local person, a person in the town who said, oh, yeah, he's a really nice guy. He wouldn't have done that. And that's it. That's where the investigation ends. Now, you know, I'm not saying, because I can't say, and it would be arrogant and hubristic to say, that's the man who was involved, or that was the genuine conspiracy to kill Bobby Kennedy. But that there was a conspiracy, and that both LAPD and the FBI knew about it, and that it was run by Bobby Kennedy's enemies is pure fact. It's in their own reports. Right, and you take time at the intro of your book to talk about how disloved and hated Kennedy was, Robert Kennedy was, but he was also kind of becoming an international figure. Before the nomination, he had been to Brazil, South, Af South Africa, so he's representing kind of left-wing uh, things all around the world. He's idealized, and it was he was running for president, but Johnson declined to run again, which is very strange in itself is a whole other story, but that was very advantageous to RFK, who his brother was really, and you know, we can go back through 1963 too. So, um, yeah, he, I mean, and you talk about in your book, you talk about they're watching the Warren Report, Garrison investigation. So that subtext is a very important element to everything that happened June 4th, 1968. Yeah, I mean, I should say straight off that I, I, I'm agnostic on the JFK case. I've never really investigated it. You know, I think there's the evidence it would appear is sometimes ambiguous. The difference with the RFK assassination is the evidence is crystal clear. And, you know, there's no ambiguity about the physical evidence, the ballistic evidence. To go back to what you were asking, when I first started on this back in 1988, I began talking to people who'd known Bobby, who'd worked with Bobby, and I did that and have kept doing that all the years. And the first thing that hit me when I began that was this incredible fracture between the two views of Bobby Kennedy. There was nothing in the middle. Some people absolutely loathed and reviled Bobby Kennedy. And some people absolutely adored him it was so polarized there was nothing in the middle and that 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 struck me very clearly from day one when i began work on writing the book what i wanted to do was to put it in put some of this into some kind of context and that's where bobby's what are sometimes called his wilderness years if you like the years following the JFK assassination, in which he takes time out, he goes abroad, he travels widely, he goes not just to Brazil and South Africa, but also to the Deep South, to the neglected and impoverished areas of the US. And reading his speeches, and reading the reactions to those speeches, was was shocking to me and it was shocking to me because one word crops up repeatedly 
in those speeches throughout those years. And that word is revolution. Revolution, revolutionary. Again and again and again. And what Bobby was running on when he got into the race was a revolutionary idea. And it was we have to have social justice, we have to have economic justice, we have to have racial justice. Yes, and we have to get out of Vietnam. But 1968, bear in mind, this is the year when America went up in flames. You know, cities burned in 1968. And here's Bobby. Here's the man who organized crime to test, who the CIA don't like at all, whom big agribusiness loathes, and he's talking about revolution. In a very high stress, high, like you said, like a very tense environment. Sixties were incredible. So, this, I mean, he's obviously perceived as a threat, you know, a threat by certain elements of the U.S. U.S. society, certainly the mob. Um, so, as as the investigation develops, it's just incredible how much new information at that time. The notion of a hypno-programmed person was beyond consideration, I would say, for most people. But what has developed in people kind of in the culture and people's understanding about this and how how this might be involved in the RFK assassination? Okay, this is the point at which people's eyes normally roll back in up into the back of their heads when you start talking about hypno-programmed assassins. And the first time I mentioned it to one of the, the commissioning editors at Channel 4 here in the United Kingdom when I was pitching the documentary I made, and they looked at me as if I was, uh, as if I was a loon. You know, really? Really? I you mean, really? And what I had to say to them was what we say in the book. This isn't us speculating. There isn't speculation in the book, as there wasn't in the film. What we said is, look, it is a fact that the CIA in the 1950s worked on and developed a program for a hypno-programmed robot assassin. Those aren't my words. Those are its words. And I can say that it's words because, like other researchers and journalists, I got hold of the CIA's own documents for that program. It's called Pro Operation Artichoke. Artichoke. And it was, quite simply, designed to create what the CIA said was a, a hypno-programmed robot assassin who would kill somebody on orders under hypnosis and then, and then, once he'd done it, have absolutely no memory of having carried out the killing. Okay, that's the theory. That's what the CIA was working towards. That's what it was trying to create. And then I came across the document, and other people have come across the document, in which the CIA said, we did this. We made this work. And here's the details of when we made it work, who we made it work with. In, in, this is in a, you know, a test situation. We have made this work. This can 
happen. And that's their own document. And you know, at the risk of laboring this point, one of the things we, Brad and I were absolutely determined to do in the book is to say, yes, we will reproduce the text of these documents, but here's where you, the readers, can find them. Go and look for yourselves. Go and read them. Make sure that we haven't made things up. We haven't, but check them. Argue with us. Tell us if you think this is nonsense, but go and look at the documents because that's what we did for 25 years. Right, so those documents do exist. They're out there, artichoke exists, all kinds of subsets of MK Ultra, And also one of the CIA's uh, guys was right there in LA too, uh, Jolly and West, right? So I think that he even debriefed Sirhan Sirhan, right? Yeah, I mean, I've seen that allegation. We don't deal with Jolly and West. We deal with one of the other guys who sort of boasted, and I got hold of an audio tape of him boasting about being involved in the hypno-programming operation in artichoke and on with other programs for the cia and guess what he is he was also involved with sahan in the sahan case and investigation and in the rfk case now you know these aren't this isn't speculation this isn't a conspiracy theory these these are documented facts um and again, we tell you exactly where to find them. If you read the book, you'll say, you'll see, oh, that document there, that's where I go find it. And honestly, I encourage everyone to do that. Yeah, it's really, it's really amazing that they did it. At a certain time, I think in the 50s, the CIA believed that there was a mind control gap, that the Russians had perfected kind of mind controlling people. And so they really ramped up and tried to figure out all this stuff. And I think... I think it was uh, O'Neill's book, um, Chaos, Operation Chaos, where he talks about that. He also goes over some of the same stuff you have. But they, it was Jolly and West and I think a guy by the name of Gottlieb who cracked it and figured it out. And then they had to kind of tell people that they didn't know how to do it to cover it up. But uh, Sidney Gottlieb was, yeah, was, the, was the big figure. And he's the one whose who's signature and whose names are on the CIA's own documents saying, hmm, we made it work. Yeah, no, it's incredible. So, I mean, what? I mean, you kind of go into if Sirhan Sirhan didn't do it, and but did fire shots, but didn't really uh, perform the, the death shot on Kennedy. What are your other kind of suspects, or wh what else did you look into? Well, we started, you know, from that very simple premise. We started, as I think any honest investigation should start with, if. The evidence, the physical, ballistic, forensic evidence shows that Sehan Sehan could not have and did not fire the shots which killed Bobby Kennedy. And if there is evidence, as there was, of other bullet holes, that means there was a second gunman. I mean, it's you can't really get round that, I'm afraid. So the next question is, who had motive? And then the question after that is, who had motive and means? And then the third question, because it's a trifecta, who had motive, means, and opportunity? And that's fine as far as it goes, but 
what we wanted to do was to say as well, well, that's not just our opinions, one thing, but what did LAPD and the FBI know about those three things, means, motive and opportunity? And that's where I came across in their own files, these three separate conspiracies named with named individuals, primarily involving organized crime, senior figures in organized crime, who boasted about being involved in this and boasted about planning to kill Bobby Kennedy if he won the California primary. And those documents show that the FBI primarily went to interview those named, those alleged to have carried this out, not just the rancher, but the organized crime figures, including Jimmy Hoffa. And when those organized crime figures said, I'm not talking to you, the FBI simply walked away. Wow, that was enough, yeah. And he and Kennedy had a history with Hoffa too, right? So they have oh, a personal history. Yeah. Oh, you talk about that book, yeah. Yeah, I mean, organized crime had every reason to loathe Robert Kennedy. He had hammered them from his days um, as counsel for the in the Senate committee. I mean, he 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 had humiliated mob leaders on in open and televised hearings, and had cracked down and had been a hammer of organized crime for a long time. You know. If anyone had the ultimate motive to get rid of Bobby Kennedy, it was organized crime. But, you know, in fairness, I think you also have to remember organized crime has a lot of money. It doesn't necessarily have a great deal of technical expertise in very delicate and difficult circumstances. The people who do have that and who also had um, skin in this game and had a long-standing relation with exactly the same organized crime figures was the CIA. Yeah, right. Right. Um, I mean, uh, yeah, it's a really an incredible story. The true story of the death of RFK is really incredible. Do you have time to uh, answer a couple questions from the audience? Absolutely. Okay, cool. Here's the first one. This is from Mr. Madat. Does Mr. Tate suspect or know of any other hypnotized assassins of high-profile people? No, I don't. Sorry. Um, I, you know, my, my work was focused on, this one. on the RFK case, and I did not come across any other leads which would say that person was or that person was. Okay, another one from Amber. Did they ever talk to the lady in the polka dot dress? Oh, my word. <laughs> that is such a saga. So just... For, for people who are new to the story, Sahan's last memory is of having coffee with a lady in the polka dot dress. And the late, the girl in the polka dot dress became a big story at the time. Numerous, I mean, we're talking 20, I think 18 or 20 witnesses saw her. And many of them saw her with Sahan. And one witness, or several witnesses rather, in particular, talked about her and a companion, not Sahan, running out of the Ambassador Hotel. One of them, one of these witnesses, was a young campaign worker called Sandy Serrano. And Sandy told LAPD, and this is recorded, it's audio recorded as well as written recording, 
that they came out. She was on the on a stairway, just getting some air, and these two rushed out of the exit from the from the hotel, pushed past her, and the girl shouted, "We shot him! We shot him!" And Sandy said, "Who? Who did you shoot?" She didn't know about the assassination at that point. And they said, Kennedy, Senator Kennedy. And then they rushed off. She, Sandy rushed around to the front of the hotel and told this story to an assistant DA. And then it was live on television. This is on the night. What did LAPD do with that? Well, they absolutely harassed Sandy Serrano and any other witness as well. I got the audio recordings of what purported to be her polygraph were in the archive. When I got hold of them, I was appalled. The lead detective doing this yells at her. He's yelling at her. He's berating. He's trying to beat her down verbally. You don't do this anyway, but you certainly don't do it during a polygraph. The polka dot dress... The Girl in the Polka Dot Dress saga is a whole chapter or several chapters in itself in the book. In the end, what I think you need to know is that my colleague Brad Johnson tracked down the identity of the real polka dot dress girl, or at least almost certainly the real polka dot dress girl. Um, and the story of how he did that and what he did is in the book. Gotcha. So people go check that out. There's another question from Dakisian. He says, are the rumors true that two or three high-level CIA operatives were seen before and after the assassination at the ambassador? I don't know is the simple answer. That's not been my focus. I know that other researchers, I think Lisa Peace um, has made that allegation. There, I think there's a problem and has been a problem with the RFK case. And I'm, I'm not saying this to belittle anyone else's work. What, I'm, what I think has caused problems is researchers or journalists coming to it, trying to prove a theory, either trying to prove that Sahan did do it or that Sahan didn't do it, and then cherry-picking evidence and clutching at other possibilities to support that theory. That's not what... Brad and I were trying to do. What we said is, we're going to follow the evidence. We're going to lay out the evidence that LAPD collected, and that's your primary source. And we'll also conduct interviews, as we did, with people who are involved in the case. The whole question of, was this CIA person there, or this CIA-connected person there, I'm I'm sure it may be relevant, but it's not proof. It's not primary source evidence and that's what we wanted to focus on gotcha and then amber asked another question is mr tate researching anything currently that he plans to write another book on yeah my my 18th book just came out and the u.s edition of it this is on the uh, cold war spy uh comes out in december i've currently got three projects in research one or more of which i hope will uh come to fruition within the next year. Awesome. Well, good luck with those projects. And people can find you at your website. It's timtate.co.uk, correct? That's the best place to contact you as well? Absolutely. There's a contact button on there. And, you know, I'm 
I'm an old school, old fashioned journalist. I like people to ask questions. And I believe that journalists like me have a duty to respond. So if someone wants to get in touch and say, I don't believe this, or I've looked at those documents, which document is it you mean? I'll answer. That's, I think we have a responsibility to do that. Gotcha. And so again, the, and that was the best place to get the book. You can get it through Amazon. Do you have any Amazon's, other? Amazon's your best bet. Gotcha. Um, and I, I think it's, it is remarkably, if depressingly, from my point of view, cheap. I think it's only a couple of bucks these days. Um, and and it was you did two editions, right? So it's a more recent edition. Is that correct, or did I yeah, misunderstand? The more recent edition updates the book slightly because two people died between the two editions. Brad obviously passed away, but one of the prime suspects, the security guard Thane Caesar, who was behind Bobby Kennedy and who many people have accused of being the real assassin, he also died. Now, that's a long and tangled saga, but we detail it in the book as well. Great. So people can get that. Again, the title of the book is The Assassination of Robert F. Kennedy, Crime, Conspiracy, and Cover-Up, A New Investigation by Tim Tate and Brad Johnson, second edition just published. Thank you so much, Mr. Tate. Thank you very much for having me. All right. Take care. All right. Stay there. I'm going to turn this off.